This is an RNZ podcast. Almost 25 years ago, two Massey University media experts surveyed the state of our censorship rules in a book called In the Public Good? There were chapters about film, TV, music, literature and a relatively new area of concern, computer games. And there were classic case studies down the years like Lady Chatterley's Lover, Lolita, Last Tango in Paris and Mortal Kombat with a K. And only in the final chapter of their book did Chris Watson and Roy Shuker ponder digital technology in the future. And most of that was about alarm over adult content being beamed in on satellite TV. But the internet was already up and running by 1998 and offering up alarming and illegal stuff online. Here's TVNZ's news show Primetime back in 1995, reporting on a doomed political effort to control it back then. A computer and a phone line is all that's needed to access explicit pornography and terrorist how-to information. The law's not kept up with technology. Tonight, MP Trevor Rogers moved to change that. Pornography industry is a multi-billion dollar business. And the use of technology and electronics is their forte. His objects are admirable. Uh, The bill may or may not meet those objectives in, in practice. It will take a complaint about bulletin board information to get action under the proposed law, but a complaint will bring in the classification office. Anyone disseminating such material will lose their computer gear and telephone connection for up to five years. They'll also be fined. Now, back in 1998, Watson and Shuker said that media headlines about internet pornography had an air of moral panic about them. Young people back then, they said, didn't seem overly interested in it, judging by what they'd seen on TV One. Well, Paul Holmes told me to. Sounds like an unusual excuse for getting caught for that, even 25 years ago. Anyway, Watson and Shuka said at the time an effort must be made to get through a complex maze of connections to find that stuff. It's not very easy to find, download or reproduce free of charge, they said. But that wasn't the case for long, and likewise content created by extremists or even terrorists. Platforms like Facebook and YouTube were up and running within just a few years, and live-streamed violence was possible long before the March 15th atrocity in Christchurch sickened this country a quarter of a century later. MP Trevor Rogers' private member's bill back in 1995 went nowhere at that time, and he only lasted another year as an MP. But the system of regulating our media content and censoring it has barely changed since then. And in recent years, referrals of online indecency and violence has come to dominate the censor's workload. Back in March 2019, the chief censor, David Shanks, hit the headlines by banning the video of the Christchurch Mosque massacre and the racist manifesto behind it. And in 2020, the law was urgently changed to make live-streaming objectionable content a specific criminal offence, and the law change also allowed the chief censor to classify a publication immediately to stop it spreading online. But the government dropped proposals to actually filter the internet by blocking public access to entire websites or specific objectionable material after hefty pushback from free speech advocates and some politicians. For example, the then leader of the opposition, Simon Bridges, warned Parliament that such powers could interfere with legitimate news gathering, like George Floyd-style eyewitness video or newsrooms revealing accounts of Oranga Tamariki's uplifts that year. Dare I say it, it's a cancel culture 
and it's not a path we should go down. I don't see this law as isolated. I think we see more of it coming. And the effect on society overall is quite insidious. Soon after that, Nationals media and broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee called this the start of the next national debate on free speech and censorship in New Zealand. And it wasn't, but one could be sparked by government plans to reform media regulation, including the power of the censors. Aside from the classification office, New Zealand has only one other statutory regulator, the Broadcasting Standards Authority, which has jurisdiction over television and radio and, in recent years, the broadcaster's own online content. The New Zealand Media Council operates as a self-regulatory watchdog for news publishers and the Advertising Standards Authority enforces the rules for ads in a similar way. And almost a decade after the Law Commission first called for a body with a consistent set of standards across all media, last year the Department of Internal Affairs proposed a new system to better protect New Zealanders from harmful content. But not only is that mission very different to upholding agreed media standards, Harm also means very different things to different people, with different ideas about the limits of freedom of expression. Last year, the Office of the Chief Censor released a report showing New Zealanders were now more exposed to and more concerned about online misinformation and extremism than ever before. And the Chief Censor David Shanks told an Otago University conference on social media this. Look, actually, we can be better than this, and this is an opportunity to think broadly and deeply and listen to, listen to um, other voices about what good looks like in this space. And, and I, I go back to what I was saying, which is, you know, I think there's some very obvious moves that we can do here to make um, the current regulatory system and framework more coherent and work better and be fitter for purpose for a digital environment. Now, is that easy? No. Um, is it going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Um, are we going to be able to make a move and learn from it and, and, and move forward? Yes, absolutely. Well, that sounds reasonable, and the government's media content review documents do say our news media are a low risk of harm themselves. But plenty of people in the media are alarmed about the possibility of having a digital age regulator with the power of a censor to block online content having power over them. David Shanks came to the end of his five-year term last week, saying that the government's content regulatory review now provides a real opportunity to address the rising tide of misogyny, hate speech, racism and misinformation across so much of the internet. So, should our news media expect or accept greater powers over their freedom to publish as a result? I don't believe they should be worried about that, but I can understand there being some uh, potential consternation and reservation about what what change will mean um you know freedom of the press and the the ability to to report without um anxiety and concern that there might be some legal liability for production of some kind of unlawful material um is an important consideration right across the world you've got regulatory structures that reflect the world as it was. And it's important to keep some of those distinctions clear when we're working through whatever comes next. But I think you can do that. And I think we're seeing um, some thinking around exactly what that looks like for the internet and um, overseas initiatives and regulation. Yeah, what do other countries do? You know, the likes of, I don't know, to pick a couple, Australia or Ireland that we're often compared to. Do they have overarching regulators that have you know, censors office powers such as you have, uh, and also regulate um, news media content broadcasting and, you know, the converged output that happens on the internet that they're all doing? 
I think one of the most interesting um, overseas comparators that I have seen is, is in Ireland, as you mentioned, where effectively they are looking to pull together some of their existing regulatory structures and frameworks into an integrated office, but still having um, within that office a broadcasting commissioner or a, or a content commissioner with separate kind of uh, areas of focus um, and jurisdiction. And I think that sort of model uh, makes some sense to me if you think about a sensible integrated approach that makes you know that that makes sense to people and is understandable and you're seeing this also with the eu initiative um, um the digital services act where effectively they're saying look um if you're acting if you're operating an online platform and distributing content and, and profiting from that in a way you are a broadcaster um, but we've got to accept that actually you don't have the sort of editorial control and oversight that a traditional broadcaster has. So we're going to apply some standards of transparency, um, some baseline standards of what you need to do to ensure that your users are kept safe and there's um, moderation of hate speech and the like. And we will have a regulator that has oversight of those standards. So it's a bit of a mix you know, we have decency laws, we have the Harmful Digital Communications Act, and the media doesn't fall foul of that, and we even might have hate speech laws entirely separate soon. So all of those sorts of egregious, gross breaches that are antisocial can be dealt with by other laws. Why not just make news media exempt if we're going to review the way we do everything? The, the question I think that immediately comes up when you have that debate is who is classified as news media? By and large, um, I think New Zealand news media takes a responsible approach. Um, that they're professional, they're aware of the standards, they're, they're aware of tolerance and thresholds, and, and make some very, very difficult and testing calls in, in real time and around um, informing the public, doing their job, reporting the news, while not creating harm. And I think there's been kind of growing awareness and maturity around what that balance looks like, particularly in the aftermath of um, the March 15 attacks. What level of assurance do we have going forward that that is always going to be the case? Because, of course, we've got online uh, channels calling themselves uh, news channels and um, broadcasters. I would suggest have none of those levels of professionalism and balance, and they certainly ignore the sorts of uh, balance, fairness and accuracy uh, that come under broadcasting standards. But it really doesn't take much imagination or much looking around to, to look at overseas examples and look at examples um, online where um, essentially the categories and demarcations start breaking down. And this is the internet, right? The process of convergence that we're, that we're battling with here. Well, you mentioned so, so any system we put in place has got to, has got to accommodate that, um, that inevitable change. David, earlier you mentioned what I think is the key word here, which is harm, and it's mentioned in the government's regulatory review documents. Uh, they say, you know, harm can manifest as people, particularly tamariki and rangatahi, experiencing trauma or feeling unsafe, isolated or marginalised, and communities being disadvantaged or discriminated against, including facing active hostility. Um, also, public processes and institutions losing trust and confidence of society. Now, 
those are things that all could be the result of totally legitimate reporting in the public interest. I mean, the truth can do a bit of harm. So news media really will be worried about the effort to, you know, move away from just upholding media standards, which is something media have a part in setting and, and abide by. And this concept of harm really does cut across what they do, doesn't it? We cannot be designing a system that is designed to prevent any harm at all or any risk of harm in terms of in those feelings that, that people will naturally experience when they're um, seeing reports of something dreadful happening. Um, I would argue that news media currently does walk that line, currently does make decisions about what images, what video, even you know what what um, survivor or witness accounts, what level of detail uh, are, are captured and portrayed um, to the to the viewership or the readership. There are some things that just um, get to the point where you are not just reporting the news, you're inflicting harm or vicarious trauma upon um, your viewers and readers. And and I think... But um, if if, if avoiding harm becomes the primary thing and not just abiding by standards, you you know, if you say reporting on a community like, uh, say, in a religious context, Gloria Vale, or even recent reports we've had about um, Arise Church and so on and the conduct of its leaders and treatment of interns there, even ones that cut across sort of ethnic lines like recent reports that have annoyed people about arranged marriages within migrant communities and so on. If if there's a regulator that has harm and avoidance of harm as its primary goal, then the yeah, media will be extremely wary of, of any rules that elevate that above the maintenance of standards and the public interest. Um, yes, broadcasters are not expected to and will not um, expose their viewers to absolutely graphic and horrendous um, detail uh, that will that will inflict harm on the viewership and beyond that um, it should be recognized that there is an obligation and expectation that um, the viewership or readers will you know will, will understandably and normally and naturally experience some some degree of um, emotion and, and arguably in some cases some degree of harm but I think the only way you you unravel that knot is is really in the process of working through um, the rules and principles to be put in place is to actually talk through exactly these scenarios and understand where there will be freedom and where there will be expectations of a balance. And just to finish, I'll go back to that book published in 1998 about censorship in New Zealand. The two authors uh, say here, look, the internet appears to be creating something that's as close to the global village concept as, as any medium has ever uh, been able to do. And they say it should be appreciated. We're only seeing the beginning of a communication medium that will soon offer full-size moving images with stereo sound. And it's probable that international computer links will supplant TV as the principal player of audiovisual imagery. So, yep, that happened. And they say the problems of control of this seem to be insurmountable. And the solution is uh, educated citizens capable of making their own choices, they say. And, uh, you know, I guess as scholars, they say, you know, this means media studies and education is the critical thing. You know, two scholars might just say that. But in the end, did they kind of see what the problem was? 
you can't control what the internet has created and in the end it does come down to individuals no matter how you structure you know the powers of your office or the self-regulatory um, uh, impulses of, of the broadcasters however that's done comes down to people yeah look it's interesting isn't it but i'd say in the late 90s people were still in thrall of a utopian view of the internet and um the 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 flowering of its potential to set um individuals free um and um you know that that it was going to be be a wild untamed but ultimately um human and potentially beautiful flowering of human potential um fast forward to 2022 actually the internet is primarily owned by a few very small very huge global conglomerates that are operating it for um for profit through a process whereby they are profiling and packaging users and selling them to advertisers so it's a very very different world that we're in now from um from that that was being looked forward to in the late 90s and i think we've got to adjust our approach accordingly that was david shanks who's just stepped down as the chief censor after five years in the job at a time when the government is reviewing how media content of all kinds should be regulated to better protect us from harm